pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the light of the world. We were a people dwelling in great darkness, and you came as the light of the world. And by your grace, you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And so we give you thanks for that. We thank you that you're the hope of the world. There's just so much brokenness. Just this morning, talked to a brother about the brokenness of people's lives and homes. And Lord, thank you that you're the one that ultimately (laughs) will restore everything to make it right. If not in this world, in the one to come. And so our hope is in you, Lord, not in this world coming through for us. We just thank you that you've opened our eyes to understand who you are. You've given us hearts. We talked in Sunday school how you opened Lydia's heart to respond to the truth. And Lord, you've done that for many of us here. I pray for anyone who still has a closed, cold, dead heart. You would do the miracle you have done for many to open their heart to receive Christ, believe on his name, be rescued from sin and death and hell and brought to you forever. Lord, only you can do that miracle. Lord, we need you to enable us to give our attention to your word. We need your grace to be able to understand it. We need your grace working in our hearts to have appropriate responses in our hearts. And so would you work among us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text for today reminds us that Christmas is much bigger than we sometimes think. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 15. We'll be starting with verse 7. Romans 15, verse 7. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Now if you're wondering where do you see Christmas in those verses, it's in the phrase, Christ became a servant. It's very similar to the way Paul describes the coming of Jesus into the world in Philippians chapter 2. So if you want to turn over to that passage in Philippians 2, begin at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Paul tells us Jesus existed in the form of God. In other words, he fully possessed the nature, the essence of God from all eternity. So John 1.1 1, 1 tells us in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And because that's true, then equality with God is not something that Jesus had to take for himself or grasp onto. It was already rightfully his. And so when he says in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one, he's not blaspheming. He's simply telling the truth. And so the one who was and is fully God became fully man. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Paul tells us in Philippians 2 and in Romans 15, he not only became a human being, he became a humble servant. Jesus himself says in Luke 22, I am among you as one who serves. Or in Mark 10.45, he clarifies why he came. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So that's how we got Christmas out of Romans 15. Christ became a servant. But why did he become a servant? The eternal Son of God, why did he come? And as Paul explains some reasons why Jesus came to earth, he touches on some ways that Christmas is bigger than we often think. So first of all, Christmas goes back further than we sometimes think. A kid's time framework for Christmas is usually just a few weeks before Christmas Day. An adult hopefully thinks back about 2,000 years to the first Christmas. But look at the phrase at the end of verse 8. It says, to confirm the promises given to the fathers or to the patriarchs. So who's that? And that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Abraham lived about 2,000 years before that first Christmas. Well, what kind of promises did God make to the patriarchs? Well, one of them is in Genesis 17.7, if you want to go to the book of Genesis. Genesis 17, verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. So here's God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, entering into a covenant relationship with Abraham and his descendants so that they will enjoy the remarkable privilege of knowing him as their God. And knowing that they are his people. And of course, the new covenant will also pick up on that language that God is now our God, we are now his people. But another promise that God made to the patriarchs is found in starting with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So go back to Genesis chapter 12. When God first calls Abraham, at that time named Abram, Abram was an idol worshiper living in Ur of the Chaldees over in Babylonia. And it just 
God just appears and says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's repeated again in chapter 18, verse 18, and chapter 22, verse 18. And then it's repeated to Isaac, Abraham's son, in Genesis 26, verse 4. Genesis 26, verse 4. God says to Isaac, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then Jacob in chapter 28, 14. 28:14, your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So those are promises God made to the patriarchs. So fast forward now a few months before the first Christmas. Go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. This is sometimes called Mary's Magnificat. She's been told that she will bear a son, even though she's a virgin. He will be great. He'll be the son of the Most High God. And and she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And in verse 46, she starts the Magnificat by saying, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And then she runs through some of God's activities. And then in verse, this is how she ends the Magnificat. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So Mary's going back to these promises made to the fathers as well, in connection with the birth of this baby she's going to have that we're celebrating at Christmas. And then 30 years later, Peter will talk about those promises in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 25 and 26. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant, and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And then last for now, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We'll read verse 8 and 9 and then 13 and 14. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Justify means declare right in his sight. Gentiles is ethnic groups. 
preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So do you see what's going on here? God picks this idol-worshipping pagan from Babylonia. There's a, a book I have in my library, the chapter on Genesis 12 is called, God So Loved the World That He Called Abraham. Because it's all starting here, isn't it? I'm going to bless the whole world through you, Abraham. And then that kept getting repeated and repeated and then fulfilled in the New Testament. And God's confirming these promises through Jesus. Christ takes away the curse of sin and brings the blessings God promised to Abraham. By the way, the word blessing, if you look it up in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, is any means of happiness, a gift, benefit, or advantage that promotes welfare or secures immortal felicity, which is how you, in 1828, you said eternal joy. To be blessed is to have eternal joy. And then Daniel Webster, in a dictionary, says this sentence, the divine favor is the greatest blessing. In other words, to be in God's favor, to know we are accepted by him, to be beneficiaries of his kindness, is the greatest joy any person can possibly experience. And Jesus came to bring blessing when we deserved curse. At the end of the service, we're going to sing, he comes to make his blessing known. How far? Far as the curse is found. How far is the curse found? The whole world. So Jesus came to fulfill these promises of blessing that were made 2,000 years before he came to bless the world. And he also fulfilled a promise made even before that. Because remember back in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God announces a number of consequences that will take place. But there's this foreshadowing of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. Let me read it to you. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So that's addressed to Satan. Satan is going to get this wound on Jesus, bruise his heel Jesus will turn around and rise from the dead and crush him on his head. So that was made however many thousand years before Abraham, all the way back in the garden. And then if you really want to stretch your mind, 
read Ephesians 1 and Revelation 13 and 17, and you'll discover that God's plan to redeem a people for himself through Christ goes back before the foundation of the world. This was not just an afterthought. It wasn't just plan B after Adam and Eve fell in the garden. It was planned from eternity past that there would be a fall and that there'd be a redemption through Jesus. So Christmas goes back much farther than we sometimes think. Second, Christmas includes more people than we sometimes think. A kid is usually thinking just about me. It's about as far as Christmas or anything else goes for a kid. A grown-up has still has plenty of me involved, but also hopefully is thinking about family and extended family and beyond that. But Romans 15 makes clear that the scope of God's blessing is much bigger than just me or even my little family or my relatives. We've already touched on this in the promises God made to the fathers. Remember, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the world will be blessed. When you get to the New Testament, you see more often the word nations or Gentiles. And they're both just the same word. comes from the word that gives the word ethnic. Ethnic groups. People united by a common language and culture. So we were, everybody in this room, or just about all of us in this room, were non-Jewish ethnic backgrounds. So we're Gentiles. We're part of the nations. And look at what... Some of these verses say, Paul wants us to remember what it was like for us Gentiles before we knew Jesus. So go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. Paul's talking to us here. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Isn't that bleak? Paul says, don't forget that's where you came from. If you read the Old Testament, it's all about God chose Israel as his people, this ethnically Jewish group, and not anybody else. It's very exclusive. And Paul says, that's where we all started. We were left out. We were strangers looking in. We were outsiders. We weren't beneficiaries of all these promises. But now we're included. It's right in the Christmas story. Lane read from Luke 2. Good news of great joy For whom? Which shall be for all people. Or Simeon, after Jesus is dedicated in Luke chapter 2. This isn't what he says in Luke 2. Simeon says, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. All ethnic groups, all nation groups a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So he's holding baby Jesus, eight days old. He says, I'm seeing your salvation right now with my own eyes. I'm seeing your salvation you provided for all peoples. Not just Jewish people like me, but everybody. 
and this fulfillment of God's promise to bless all the nations and all the families of the earth is seen culminating in Revelation 7, 9. Revelation 7, 9. John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's where this is all going. That's why we have missions. God's plan for the nations is to bless all the nations through the seed of Abraham, which Galatians 3 tells us is Christ. And this will come to pass so that there is representation from every people group, culture, language group around the throne giving praise to God for the salvation he provided for the world. So Christmas includes more people than we sometimes think. And third, Christmas has a bigger purpose than we often think. Ask a kid what's the main purpose of Christmas, and he might say, for me to get presents. Ask an adult at the mall, and they might say, it's about peace on earth. And a Christian might have a true understanding of why Christ came, but maybe incomplete. So, for example, a few years ago, there was a group of Baptist churches got together for a meeting in Iowa, and the official newsletter for the group quoted one of the speakers saying, quote, the primary purpose for Jesus coming to earth was to love us. Now, it is wonderfully true that Jesus loves us. We should teach our kids to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's a blessing to be able to say with Paul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul, in Ephesians 3, prays for believers to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So, the love of Jesus is infinitely precious. We're not going to downgrade that at all. But, is being and feeling loved by Jesus the ultimate reason for Christmas? Or is there something bigger? So let's reread Romans 15, 9 and 8 and 9. For I say, Christ has become a servant... Jesus comes to earth as a man, as a servant. Why? On behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. So, nothing about so you would feel loved. Though it's true. Nothing about really Let's just keep going. This is John Piper. This is how he summarizes verse 8 and 9. Christ was on a mission to magnify God. 
He came to show that God is truthful. He came to show that God is a promise keeper. And he came to show that God is glorious. Jesus came into the world for God's sake, to certify God's integrity, to vindicate God's word, and to magnify God's glory. Since God sent his son to do all this, it is plain that the primary motive of the mission of Jesus from heaven was God's zeal for the glory of God. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves you. Amen. Thank God. But there's more to be said. The Bible doesn't terminate on us as if we're the main point. The Bible is all about God and His glory. He's the main point. And so we skew Christmas, if we think it's mostly about me, or ultimately about me, it's ultimately about God. Just like everything else in the universe is ultimately about God. From him and through him, to him, including Christmas, is all things. To him be the glory. So we don't want to lose that picture. Don't settle for us inadequate view of why Jesus came. Go big, like Romans 15. He came to glorify God, and we are the beneficiaries of that mission. And we do experience his love and his salvation and his peace and his joy and all the gifts and all the blessings that come from that. But it's ultimately about God receiving glory, that God is given the praise and honor that is due him as the great and glorious God that he is. That's why we exist. That's why we were created. That's why Christmas happened. That's why everything happens. Is for the glory of God. So Paul mentions two of the attributes of God that call for this response of giving him glory. First, his truthfulness. Christ became a servant to the circumstances. He's just talking about the Jews there. On behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So the coming of Christ into the world was to fulfill all these promises God made to send a deliverer. All these promises God made about a blessing coming for the whole world. Those promises were kept, which points to the faithfulness and truthfulness of God. He didn't just make these big promises and not follow through. He kept all of them. Number 20, Numbers 23 19, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. Has he not spoken and shall he not do it? God doesn't make promises and not follow through. He does what he says he will do. And so we could say one of the purposes of Christmas is to glorify the truthfulness of God, that he would be seen and known and trusted as the faithful God that he is. And then let's read. Verses 9 through 11, in addition to being glorified for his faithfulness, the purpose of Christmas is to glorify God for his mercy. So verse 9 says, And for the Gentiles, the nations, the ethnic groups of the world, to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore, I will give praise to you among the ethnic groups, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O ethnic groups, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you ethnic groups, and let all the peoples praise him. 
So all nations, all the ethnic groups of the world are called to rejoice and are called to praise God and are called to give God the honor and thanks that is due him as the merciful God that he is. Mercy is God's tender response to those in need, his compassion for the helpless, his kindness to those in misery, not because we deserve it. In fact, we deserve to suffer the consequences of our sin. We deserve to be under that curse that we saw in Galatians 3. But God is full of mercy. So let me read a few verses about God's great mercy. Go to 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1, starting at verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world... To save sinners. There's the summary of Christmas right there. Why did Jesus come? To save sinners. Among whom I am foremost of all. Yet, for this reason I found mercy. So that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's Paul starting off. Let me tell you about Christmas. Jesus came to save sinners. I'm the biggest sinner I know. And if Jesus can save a sinner like me, he can save anybody. And I can't, when I think about that, I can't help but saying, now to the king, be praised. In other words, Jesus came for the glory of God. He came to save sinners. He loved me. But it echoes back or responds back to give God the glory for it. Or Titus 3, 4 and 5. Here's another description of Christmas that brings in mercy. Verse 4 of Titus 3. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, rescued us. Why? Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And one more, 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. Peter's talking to us Gentiles again. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies or proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, for you once were not a people. But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you Gentiles got mercy, now you're a people, and you were in darkness, and now you're in light, and the appropriate response is to proclaim the praises of him who did that. So you see, Christmas mercy praise. Not just Christmas mercy me, but Christmas mercy, yes, I'm rescued, to God be the glory. 
So the ultimate purpose of Christmas is the glory of God. Not just that we would experience God's mercy, but that we would glorify God for that mercy. It terminates on God, not us. So here's a quote from J.I. Packer. Just as the design of creation was to display the power and greatness and wisdom of the Almighty Creator and evoke a response of awe and gratitude, so the design of salvation is to display God's love, mercy, and grace in such a conspicuous way as to fill all hearts with wonder and all lips with praise. That's why there's Christmas. To fill your hearts with wonder, my heart with wonder, and to fill all our lips with praise. That's why we're singing these Christmas songs. And every other Sunday, we're singing songs of praise to God. Because that's the ultimate reason for God's rescue mission for us, is that he would receive the glory that's due him as the merciful God that he is. And after quoting from Deuteronomy and Psalm, Paul then quotes from Isaiah 11 in verse 12, back in Romans 15. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. So two truths about Jesus. One, he is the rightful king of the world. Did you notice how many songs we sang about king this morning? Glory to the newborn king. Root of Jesse talks about he's the son of David. He's descended physically from the line of David and he will rule over the nations. And Jesus is the only hope of the world. In him, the nations, the people groups, the ethnic groups all over the world shall hope. Matthew 12 quotes from Isaiah 42 in a similar way. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant. Christ became a servant. My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. That's what God said at his baptism and at his transfiguration. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the nations, the ethnic groups. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out. He's so gentle and compassionate, tender and kind. Until... He leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles, the nations, the ethnic groups, the peoples will hope. So Jesus is the king of the world and he's the hope of the world. And so as we close, who or what are you hoping in? What are you trusting in to be accepted by a holy God? Remember we saw in Ephesians 2, we were without hope. The reason we're without hope is Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So we're all under this curse for sin. We deserve God's judgment. 
And there's no hope of being good enough and no hope of doing enough to cancel that out somehow so that we're in good shape. We saw in Titus 3.5, it was not because of works done by us, but because of his mercy. So it's not about something we're going to do. Our only hope is to put our hope in Jesus. Let me say that again. Our only hope is to put all our hope in Jesus. Even his name tells us he will save his people from their sins. That's what we need to be rescued from, is our sins. Our disobedience to God, our failure to obey God. But how? How does he deliver his people from his sins? Not just by being born in a manger, but by dying on a cross as a substitute for sinners. Years ago, I got a Christmas card that said he came to pay a debt he did not owe because we had a debt we could not pay. That's why Jesus came. Not just to be a baby, but to be a savior. To pay the debt of sin that we owed and could never pay off, even in hell. It's never paid off. But Jesus paid it. And his resurrection shows that he paid it in full. There's no balance due. And let me tie in one other verse about his resurrection to what we've been saying this morning. This comes from 1 Peter 1.3. Peter starts out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God is de- we're deserving glory and praise and thanks and honor. Why? Who, according to his great mercy, talked about that, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So before we had no hope, and now because of Jesus, we have a living hope because of Jesus. So let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you that you included us Gentiles into your plan of redemption, that all who trust in Jesus would be included in your people, We'd be forgiven of our sins. We'd be put in a right relationship with you forever with joy and peace and hope. We just thank you for this gift we can't even imagine. I pray for anyone who's never received the gift of salvation through Jesus, that even today they would put all their hope and trust in Jesus alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.